Second Samuel 16, at verse 1. And when David was a little past the top of the ascent, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled, and upon them 200 loaves of bread, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and a hundred of summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. And the king said unto Ziba, What meaneth thou by these? And Ziba said, The asses are for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine that such as are faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is thy master's son? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem. For he said, Today will the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Then said the king unto Ziba, Behold, thine is all that pertaineth unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I do obeisance. Let me find favor in thy sight, my lord, O king. A couple of strange names. Ziba and Mephibosheth. We have seen them before some time ago. Here they are again. Who were they? And more importantly, what were they? In the outline, I've listed Ziba as an unrighteous servant. I'm reminded of that servant that Christ spoke of that was unrighteous, doing things for his own welfare, not the welfare of his master. But Ziba was what we would call a sycophant. Now this is all taking place, as we've indicated a number of times, from the chastening hand of our God, David's God, chastening him for his sin with Bathsheba for the murder that he was responsible for, the murder of her husband, Uriah. I have occasionally experienced chastening, very kind chastening from my wife for using big words without explaining them. So perhaps some of you younger people may not recognize what a sycophant is. It's not related to an elephant at all. A sycophant is a synonym for a sycophant is a flatterer. We might think of him as a yes man. To flatter subserviently, and we even have just read something that sounds quite a lot like that sort of behavior. And Ziba said, I do obeisance, O great king, flattering him, bowing down to him, you see. And that's often what a sycophant does. I'm not suggesting by any means that everyone that bows to a king is a sycophant or a flatterer. But we will discover that it's very likely that Ziba was such an individual flattering subservently for selfish reasons, for his own good. In Psalm 5, 
at verse 9, we see the word flatter used of the psalmist, David, when he says, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth, their inward part is very wickedness, their throat is an open sepulcher, they flatter with their tongue. And in the margin of my copy, it says for flatter, make smooth their tongue. They make smooth their tongue. They smooth it out. They're kind of greasy people. It makes you think of a serpent or something. They're smooth. They slip and slide and entwine others. Flattery, we're told in Proverbs, is a trap. And false praise, false praise is given by these flatterers. That's what a sycophant does. That's what a flatterer does. He utters false praise to gain the favor of, of the object of that praise. He utters sweet-sounding words. That's what we believe Zeba was, a flatterer, a sycophant. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. And if you remember in Samuel chapter 1, that there was a covenant made between Jonathan and David. And Jonathan asked David to covenant with him that he would preserve his seed, his children. And we read in 2 Samuel, after David had come to the throne, we read in 2 Samuel how that he asked if there were any yet of the household of Jonathan that he may do him honor, that he may keep his word, his covenant word, to Jonathan about his seed, about his family. And we're told there that Ziba, and that's the first time we hear of Ziba, that he was brought to David, and Ziba said he was the servant of Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, and the grandson of David's predecessor, King Saul. So that's who Mephibosheth was. He was the son of Jonathan. We learn in these chapters really the same time that David learns of Ziba and, and Mephibosheth. We learn at the same time in our reading who they were. Of course, David, you remember how he treated Mephibosheth. He gave him all the lands that belonged unto his father as heir to the throne of Saul. He gave Mephibosheth all those lands. And he instructed Ziba to serve as he had served Saul, as he had served Jonathan to serve Mephibosheth in like manner. Ziba had, I think, 15 sons and 20 servants. So he had quite a staff to help him accomplish that. But that's how David left it until, of course, he told Mephibosheth, you yourself will sit at my table as one of my sons. We almost see a, a spirit of adoption there emanating from David, the king. You shall see, sit at my table, your feet under my table. 
And so that's pretty much the last that we had heard of Mephibosheth or Ziba until this 16th chapter of 2 Samuel when David is being pursued by his own son, Absalom. And we see Ziba coming up with all these gifts, all this foodstuffs and wine and asses for them to ride upon. We aren't told and we don't really know Ziba's motivations. We, we infer it and we discover it later on in this book. It is disclosed. But here we can only look at the surface, even as David was looking only at the surface. And we have to give David the benefit of the doubt, perhaps, or at least cut him some slack. David's confidence in man had been shaken severely. His own son, his favorite son, sought his life, sought to take his throne, sought to take his head off from him. His own son. And then he had just heard that Ahithophel, his best counselor, had taken sides with Absalom and others. And at one point he's told that all Israel is after Absalom. So it would be fair to uh, infer, to assume that David's confidence in man had been shaken severely. We probably have all experienced something like that. Hopefully not to that degree, but have we not had our confidence in men shaken over the years, perhaps more so if you've been walking with the Lord for a greater number of years, but I believe that we all, to one degree or another, have likely experienced that. All men have feet of clay, we have learned, have we not? David's confidence in man had been shaken, and he, through that, he, he was judging the book by its cover. And we've known from when we were little children, don't, don't judge a book by its cover. There's a lot more to it than what you see on the cover. And Ziba's cover looked pretty good. All these things that he brought unto him to help him. I've come to your aid. I've come to help you. I've come to, to provide sustenance and, and, and animals to ride on for you and your men, for your wife, perhaps, and your son. We have every reason to believe Bathsheba and Solomon were walking in that troop, walking with their husband and father, perhaps barefoot, and, and walking without having anything to ride upon. So the cover looks pretty good. So maybe David can be excused somewhat. And this shaken trust in man shook his confidence in Mephibosheth, didn't it? It shook his confidence in Mephibosheth. You remember how Mephibosheth came to David when he sent for him and, and Mephibosheth bowed down to him and said, and when David told him he was going to restore the land and, and that he was going to be allowed to sit at the king's table, he said, in all sincerity and humility, he said, such a dead dog as I am? David must have been able to relate to that sincere humility at the time. But now, with being pursued by Absalom and, 
in thousands and so on. His confidence is shaken. So he's guilty of judging a book by his cover with regard to Zeba and failing to trust in Mephibosheth, at least trusting far enough and long enough to wait until he hears from Mephibosheth. He's heard one side of the story here, has he not? And only one. We may have going on in this account something of, we've heard something of this lately, and hopefully we won't hear any more of it, quid pro quo. What is quid pro quo? We could put it simply, it's tit for tat. It's this for that. It's something for something. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The terminology, I understand, may have come from a pharmaceutical term. Or, of course, they talked about apothecaries, which preceded pharmacies. But they talk about the terminology of medica- medications and so on. And that quid pro quo meant you can substitute something else for this. If you don't, you know, here's a prescription for aspirin, but if you think Tylenol works better, go ahead. In our day, we see many prescription items substituted by generic items that are supposedly equivalent, but that's where it came from. Something for something. This for that. The writer of Proverbs, likely Solomon, said a man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before great men. A man's gift maketh room for him. A man's gift gives him a place at the king's table. We could put it that way. A man's gift gives him the king's ear. Of course, we don't know anything about that in our society. But Solomon spoke of it many centuries ago. A man's gift maketh room, maketh a place for him, maketh space for him. And on the other side of that equation, this Proverbs also say, a, a wicked man receiveth a bribe out of the bosom. A wicked man receiveth a bribe out of the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. There's the other side of it. The one man's getting a place at the table. The other man is willing to take that and to give quid pro quo for it. The writer of Ecclesiastes had something to say with regard to this also. When he uttered these words, be not rash with thy mouth and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Oh my. Perhaps some of us are of fewer words than others, but we've all been guilty of uttering too many words. Have we never said anything and it's gone out of our mouth as we wish we could grab it back? and cram it down our throats. We wish we'd never uttered that word or that thought. Let thy words be few, and that'll help you to not have to reach out and try to grab that, that word. 
But rather, as James has told us, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Be slow to speak. David was too quick to speak. He was too quick to make a presumption looking at the book cover, making a presumption of Ziba. But he was also too swift to speak, was he not? He said, oh, I'm giving you everything, Ziba, everything that belongs to your master. He said master's son because he used to be Saul and Jonathan's, or Saul and, yeah, Saul and Jonathan's servant. So he says, I'm giving you all that pertains to Mephibosheth. He just handed over all that property without ever checking with Mephibosheth. Is this so? Are you really a traitor like Ziba has said? He never asked Mephibosheth. And he just blurted out, okay, everything of his belongs to you now, Ziba. No wonder Ziba said, ah, thank you. My ruse worked. You could almost imagine him saying to himself, my pretense has gained my desire. Zeba was cunning and playing both ends against the middle. Some have suggested that if he, if he really wasn't for David, he was really sticking his neck out, you see. If he had really stuck his neck out, he would have stuck with David. He just brought him that stuff and said, there you go, hey, thanks for the property, and, and back, uh, you know, I'll go take care of it now. I'll go tend all those acres that you've given me. He was cunning, he was playing both ends against the middle, we can imagine. Well, maybe David will win, and then I've, I did this favor for him. But I don't want to look too much on his side. Maybe Absalom will win, I don't really know. I'm gonna try. I'm going to keep my options open, doing enough to gain David's favor, but not too much that I might burn bridges between Absalom and myself. He was very cunning. He was not content, evidently not content to be the manager of all that land. He was not content to be a servant of Mephibosheth, but he coveted to be the master of it. We see that in our society. Ladder climbers, I mean, everybody is pulling this guy down and that gal down and they're trying for the top of the ladder in whatever their business endeavor is, whatever their occupation is. That's what he was doing here. He wanted to be the ruler over that land. He didn't want to be a servant anymore, especially not a servant to some cripple like Mephibosheth was. Remember how we read about that? some months ago, how that when he and his, his uh, servant woman was, they were fleeing when they heard about Saul and Jonathan being slain by the Philistines at Gilboa. They were running for fear the Philistines had be coming after them and Mephibosheth fell and became lame in both his feet, we're told. So here he is, lame in both his feet. He, he can hardly even help himself. And yet David is going to believe, David's going to believe that this lame fellow who was of the house of Saul that had been enemies to David and, and his sons, hereditary for some time now, 
that this Mephibosheth really is imagining that the kingdom's going to be restored to him? David must have known Mephibosheth wasn't that foolish. But he wasn't thinking. And again, Ziba was very cunning. He wanted to be the master. We're reminded of, of that parable that Christ told about the householder and the husbandman that were left to take care of the householder's property. And, and he sent, you know, the fruit should be ready now. And he sent servants and so on. And he ends up sending his son because they had beaten and killed uh, the householder's servants. But what did, they, what did they do when they saw the son? They said, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And then we can take the property for ourselves. This is the heart that Ziba has evidenced here. Let's get rid of Mephibosheth and then I can have this property for myself. Had David forgotten the false charges that were leveled against him when he was fleeing from Saul? The false charges that were leveled against him by sycophants of Saul's? Making up stories, convincing Saul that David wants his throne? Telling stories. The evil insinuations that were made against the priests of Nam by Doeg and so on. Evidently, they didn't come to his mind at all. Perhaps little came to his mind. It was right. He was swift to hear a false story. But sadly, he was not slow to speak in giving Zeba what he wanted. This story, this account reveals, doesn't it, man's fickleness, how fickle we are by nature. It reveals our fickleness and also our vulnerability. It reveals the fickleness of a zeba, the vulnerability of a David. I've been learning a lot of unhappy, unpleasant things about my hero these last few years. Tim spoke to that in Sunday school. I didn't expect to find out, apart from his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, what a failure he was, what a rascal he was. But it reveals to us, and these things were written for our admonition, were they not? These are life lessons that we find in the life of David. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, and he was an eminent type of Jesus Christ, but he is a type of us, too. Many times behaving as a fool. Many times behaving stupidly, unrighteously. We can relate to that. But we have scriptural teaching over and over again. And Christ himself gives us this in Matthew 18, talking about if, if a brother offends you, or if someone offends you, how do you deal with it? And he comes to this conclusion that if he won't hear you, take with thee one or two more witnesses, that at the mouth of two witnesses or three, every word may be established. David didn't do that, and it's not New Testament teaching that he didn't have the benefit of. 
Christ was talking about teaching that's found in the Old Testament. Two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy in particular. Thou shalt not rest justice. Thou shalt not respect persons. David was resting justice. He was respecting Ziba and, and being unrighteous toward Mephibosheth. Neither shalt thou take a bribe. Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. For a bribe doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. He was influenced. Whether he was taking a bribe or not, he was influenced by Ziba. Two or three witnesses. Throughout the word of God, two or three witnesses. I think I've said something along these lines before, standing up here over the last several years, as bad a person as O.J. Simpson was, as much as I think O.J. Simpson was guilty of murder, if they couldn't bring two witnesses, then I could never agree to him being executed for that murder. There needs to be two or three witnesses. I don't think much of circumstantial evidence. That's all David had, and he rested upon it, it seems. Paul carries this over into his teaching in the, in the New Testament when he wrote to Timothy. He said, against an elder receive not an accusation except at the mouth of two or three witnesses. I was reminded, and I, I mentioned this a number of years ago, a war movie, this group on a Pacific island, and this captain, this captain was paranoid about Japanese snipers killing him, and he wouldn't wear his insignia at all. And the first thing you see of him in the movie, this was just a subplot, but the first thing you see of him in the movie is he's having one of his privates whipped because he forgot and he saluted him. He didn't want anybody saluting him because then that would tip off the snipers if that guy's an officer. He was paranoid about snipers. Snipers note, they take note of the value of bringing down an officer. And brothers and sisters, the world takes note of the value of bringing down an officer in the church of Jesus Christ as well. A sniper, a bushwhacker, a backstabber is something of a coward, a sneak. Arthur Pink's made this comment, only out and out Cowards stab in the back or under the cover of darkness. Again, we say, we repeat Paul's words against an elder, receive not an accusation except at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Are elders more unlikely to commit some grievous sin? No. But they do represent in a, in a particular manner the church, the body of Christ. And so they are more vulnerable. And there's a right 
in a way to be paranoid. There was a, there, it made sense for that officer on that Pacific Island to be paranoid. He shouldn't have whipped that private, but it made sense for him to be paranoid. The apostle, one has said the apostle willeth this to be more specially observed as to officers in the church, this two or three witnesses, whose faithful discharge of their trust usually more exposeth them to people's peevish tongues. They're more exposed. Can you understand that? They're, they're the ones, hey, if we take him down, we can take that church down. If to be accused, if to be accused were sufficient to make a man guilty, just the accusation, no good minister should ever be innocent. If an accusation was the end of the matter, if that was sufficient, if two or three witnesses were not required. Every fool, one other writer said, has a bolt to shoot. He meant like an arrow to shoot at a faithful preacher. Be zealous, not only of elders, but be zealous of the reputation of your brothers and sisters, and not least of the fair fame of those who speak for Christ. Lest the Lord himself be wounded, his body being wounded, his church being wounded, and his cause injured through them. It's simple. Two or three witnesses. How difficult is that? I realize logistically it may be difficult at times. I mean, how difficult is it to grasp that that's the teaching of Scripture throughout? Be zealous of the reputations of thy brothers and sisters. Or Paul even could be said to speak to this matter, this difficulty in Romans 14 that is truly uh, about um, liberty of conscience but these words apply when he says who art thou that judgest the servant of another to his own lord he standeth or falleth you need to have witnesses don't let just simply an accusation stand on its own it's not enough it's not enough John Stott said that adherence to this Biblical principle would have silenced many of a malicious talebearer and saved many pastors from unjust criticism and unnecessary suffering. If that were adhered to. You don't listen to an accusation. You say, where's your proof? Where are your witnesses? Don't even give ear to it. In Exodus 23, 1, we read these words, Thou shalt not take up a false report. Put not thy hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You see what's being said. Don't take up a false report. Don't take it in. Don't accept an accusation. There needs to be witnesses. If you do that, you're putting your hand with the wicked, making yourself an unrighteous witness. Many consciences not, not <coughs> making consciences not to receive readily a false report of his neighbor 
when it is devised by another. Very wisely, of course, those are words of wisdom in Proverbs. Very wisely it has been said, he that pleadeth his cause first seemeth just, but then his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. The one that pleads the cause first seems just. Well, that sounds right. David might have been saying about Zeba's charge against what he said Mephibosheth's hopes were and, and words were. Well, you know, it sounds, sounds right. Maybe he did get tired of, of not being king himself. I mean, his brain was a little scrambled, but he may. He may because that's what he heard first. In the NIV, that's not considered by me the best translation, but if that was the only one I could have on a desert island, that's what I'd be happy to take it. But I like their rendering of that proverb, says in a lawsuit, I mean, it brings it kind of contemporary. In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right. That's simple, isn't it? In a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right. Why do you suppose then that we have prosecution and defense lawyers both? So that the other one can say something until someone comes forward and cross-examines. Until that cross-examination, David should have waited. He didn't have to give the land away to Zeba then. He said, well, thank you, Zeba. We'll take care of this when, if and when the Lord is willing to bring me back to Jerusalem. One old writer simply said, and it's, I don't know who said it, it's anonymous, but it's great. God has given us two ears that we might hear both sides. It's as simple as that. God has given us two ears that we might hear both sides. Prejudices cause prejudging often. You may prejudge. I don't know, maybe Mephibosheth spoke an ill word to David uh, sitting at his table one time and David has been holding a grudge. I'm making that up, of course, but I'm just saying that if he were prejudiced, then that could twist his judgment. That's what's being said here. David, David could have been swayed also by the gifts that Ziba brought or, or by his own prideful confidence in his own discernment. I can decide, I can judge this case. Thou shalt not rest justice, thou shalt not respect persons, nor take a bribe, and so on. Thou shalt not do these things. And in Psalm 15, these things can be linked up with some other very important features. You're familiar with Psalm 15, probably. I'm gonna read the first few verses. The question, Jehovah, who shall sojourn in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh truth in his heart. Who is that? Verse three, he that slandereth not with the tongue nor doeth evil to his friend, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Again, takes up a reproach. We need to stick our fingers in our ears sometimes. 
unless we think that we are so holy, unless we think that we are so wise that we wouldn't be guilty of taking up a reproach, that we wouldn't be guilty of making a, a determination about who's right and who's wrong after we've heard one side. Don't do it. Taking up a reproach. The sin, Spurgeon said, of being too ready to believe ill reports. And we need to be careful even if the reports are true. You know what gossip is? Oh no, uh, we never, we don't, we don't know anything about gossip in this body. But gossip doesn't hinge upon whether it's true or false. Gossip is gossip. Even if Joe did punch his wife, it's still gossip even if he really did it. You don't have to pass on evil reports. It's taking up a reproach. It's sinful. It's receiving an accusation. And many times believing a lie, as David did here. And guess what? This was the fall. This was the fall of our first parents, wasn't it? Isn't that the case? <laughs> Isn't the first sin linked inextricably with taking up a reproach against God? Has God said? Oh, don't believe him. He really, he really is not looking out for your welfare at all. Adam and Eve believed a lie. And we are not to do that. It's taking up a, a reproach. It's taking up a false report and often believing a lie. At the end, that's kind of the first part of the scriptures where we read about Adam and Eve believing a lie. Among the last few words of the scriptures in Revelation 22, we read about those going to the pit. And among those terrible, wicked people, fornicators, adulterers, are also those that loveth and maketh a lie. Not just those that make a lie, but those that love it. And I'm going to infer from that, those that love a lie are those that take it in those that take up a reproach against their neighbor, those that take up a false report against an elder, those that believe a lie, those that gossip, those that love and make a lie. The saints of God must not be too light of hearing, much less of believing all tales, rumors and reports of their brethren. And charity requires that we do not only stop and stay them, but that we examine them before we believe them. We examine them before we believe them. Thus the necessity of two or three witnesses. One witness shall not rise up against a man. Not one witness. There needs to be two or three. David here he had put aside the law against adultery. Maybe he thought, I'm king, it doesn't apply to me. And then he, then he overrode the law against murder. 
pragmatically having Uriah slain. Now we see him ignoring this prime feature of adjudication. Well, I, I don't need two or three witnesses. I can decide this. After all, I'm still king. He receives this accusation of Zebu with regard to the absence of Mephibosheth without question. It causes him to err greatly, sadly. Matthew Poole said it's not easy to know which is the greater sinner. It's not easy to know which is the greater sinner. He that spreads a reproach or he that willingly receives it. Reflect on that. Which is the greater sinner? The one that spreads a reproach or the one that takes it in? Poole thought it was pretty hard to know the difference. To have respect of persons in judgment is not good. You remember Naboth? Remember that account of Naboth? Ahab wanted his vineyard and Naboth wouldn't sell it to him because it was, it was part of his inheritance. He couldn't lawfully sell it. But Ahab wanted his vineyard, all that he had. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. Cry, cry, cry. Jezebel, being more wicked even than Ahab and more crafty, she came up with a way. You can get it. I'll see that you get it. And she had two witnesses lie regarding Naboth. She had two witnesses lie so that he could Naboth could be slain, stoned to death. They accused him of blasphemy against the name. So he was stoned to death. Oh, the owner's dead. Hey, Ahab, Jezebel said you can go and take that field of Naboth's now, that vineyard, it's yours. Prejudice can make room for believing false witness. It's sad that even though the law tells us that there need to be two or three witnesses, we can see that it can be perverted by lying witnesses. Indeed, we read about that in the New Testament, do we not? And these people that listen to these false witnesses, they hear what they want to hear. They hear what is serving their purpose. And maybe that's what David was doing, hearing what served his purpose at the time. But we read, now the chief priests and the whole council sought false witness against Jesus that they might put him to death. That was their desire and they found it not, though many false witnesses came, but afterward came too and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said unto him, answerest thou nothing? And they took the word of those two false witnesses and determined to have Christ crucified on the basis of those two false witnesses. Say, well, what do we do about that? Well, we find in Deuteronomy a response to that also, that anyone that bears false witness and has found out that he will suffer what he intended his victim to suffer. In other words, if it were applied to these two false witnesses, they would have been subsequently crucified as well. They denied Christ with their false testimony. He will deny them. 
unless God is gracious before they die. They stood up against him. And the day will come unless God graciously gives them a regenerate heart. The day will come when he will stand against them when he comes to take his church, his bride unto himself. He will stand against them. Let us pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we thank thee, O Lord our God, for thy grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And we happily and freely confess that we have nothing. We have nothing but what we have received from thee. Tis only thy grace that has made us to differ from others. But we thank thee and praise thee for that difference. We pray, O Lord our God, that thou would give us more grace, grace upon grace, that we might ever and always walk differently than the world. By thy grace, for thy glory, we ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> Just stand, please, for the benediction. From Psalm 29, the conclusion of Psalm 29. Jehovah sat as king at the flood. Yea, Jehovah sitteth as king forever. Jehovah will give strength unto his people. Jehovah will bless his people with peace. Amen.